Welcome to TAPS, the accounting podcast series. I'm Albie Brooks and working with me is Abby Trelaw. Today, our guest is Gunter Burkhardt. Gunter has built a global reputation as an organizational CFO, as well as a team and people leader working in leading international companies. Gunter has held accounting and finance roles in such companies as Procter & Gamble, Reckitt, the former Foster's Group, Treasury Wine Estates, Kraft Foods, now Mondelez, and most recently Blackmores, where Gunter has been CFO for the last two years, finishing up in March this year. Moreover, Gunter's interest in the development of those entering the accounting and finance field extend to his role as an executive in residence here at Melbourne a few years ago, as well as significant contributions to the development of interactive simulations and case studies to enhance the student learning experience. Let's find out more. Welcome to TAPS, Gunter. Well, thanks a lot, Albie. Really great to be able to join you today. Perhaps we could start with the early days, Gunter. What attracted you to accounting and finance in the first place? Well, Albie, I'd love to be able to tell you that it was this grand scheme and, and that my career was all planned well in advance, but that would be, that would be probably misstating things or overstating things. Um, the truth was I, I was good in, in high school at, at, at numbers and, uh, and at, the, at the math side of things, but likewise was you know, good at English, good at history, et cetera. So I had a, a broad spectrum of interest and it was hard for me to decide what to go into. Uh, I knew it would be a business field, but I wasn't sure which one, but I was lucky because I went to a university that had a co-op program. So you got a broad selection of classes in the first couple of years. And then after the second year was done, uh, companies came on campus and they would begin to hire you for four, four month stints. And it just so happened that the company that made me the best offer was Shell Oil, and it allowed me to move to Calgary. And I had never traveled in Canada before. I'd always lived near my house and I was really excited by the prospect of travel. It just happened to be a finance and accounting role. So really, that's how I ended up in finance and accounting. Well, it must have, uh, it, something must have worked in your favor because you've stayed with this now for, for quite a long time. Um, so connected to this, what attracted you to, to industry? So as you say, you, uh, that offer from Shell back in those early days, you spent a lot of time in roles in what I, I would term industry inside organizations working in an accounting and finance role. So what attracted you to spend much of your career in in industry say as opposed to consulting or the large accounting firms yeah that's a great question Albie and listen I went on um, from Shell Oil um, you know a couple of things I'd say the the co-op program had another benefit if companies liked what they saw it it was something that could lead to full-time employment and so as the last two years of my university degree unfolded, then you've got a choice. And as you say, you get, you get uh, industrial companies wanting to hire you, you get the big four, and they've got a very compelling offer. Uh, many, many finance and accounting students join the, the big four firms. Um, you know, get M&A banks that are trying to hire finance and accounting people. Uh, in this case, what happened is my second and third co-op terms were then with Procter & Gamble. Then it'd be an offer to, to, to come to Toronto and to work with them. Uh, and the great thing for me was they made me an offer to join them before I was finished my last year of studies. Uh, 
And so that was a that was a tremendous opportunity. It sort of takes a lot of pressure off where you're going to work. Uh, and I think what was great about Procter and Gamble is they're a really good training company. So I was able to start into industry with somebody who'd go through the basics. You know, how do you write an effective business case? You know, how do you analyze? You know, financials in relation to innovation. But I think the other thing that really attracted me to industry, Albie, is if you get a choice of do I want to consult about something or do I want to audit something or do I want to own it? There was a part of me that really wanted to own it. Yeah. And industry offered me a choice to, 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 you know, over time as my experience grew and my roles grew, industry offered, offered the opportunity to, to really own the outcomes of things within a company rather than consulting about them or auditing them. All of them are good fields. All of them can be great career choices. I'm certainly not belittling anything else, but what I've loved about industry is that level of agency and ownership that you get. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so within those roles then, and over the years, how has that, that, uh, that role of accounting and finance, perhaps in particular management accounting, but generally accounting and finance, how's, how's that role changed over, over the years? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's getting, as you said, close to three decades for me. So I've sort of seen a lot of evolutionists as you have, Albie. Yes. And, um, and uh, I would say this, a few decades ago, accounting and finance were more concerned with sort of the practice of illustrating the performance of a company through its financial statements. So it had really important objectives that, that you know, they're basic, like uh, how do we describe the backward looking performance of a company? How do we ensure strong controls? How do we protect assets? How do we provide visibility? And these are still important things today, but they sort of were the main driving factors behind accounting and finance a few decades ago. What I've seen in the last couple of decades is a huge shift as finance and accounting has morphed from being about counting the beans to helping grow them. And, and that sort of finance and accounting has a seat at the table now, an opportunity to really help shape strategy and to make better decisions for the company. And that last couple of decades has seen an, you know, a real shift as finance people become strategic partners. And it's really about how, how do you use advanced analysis to improve those decisions. And the accounting and finance function, we, we sort of sit in the middle of that access to information. And the question is, how do we use that information to make better decisions, to change the future for a company? Mm. That has been a, a huge shift in the last couple of decades, LB. I think it's just fabulous to see um, the, the accounting and finance function sitting at the table with the decision makers, um, as you say, compared to, or as well as in the background, um, you know, providing information that, that is and data that's certainly necessary, but it's great to have a seat at the table and something sort of we try to convey to students, um, you know, through the, the education process as well, with the importance of, of that role. Um, which I think also, which we'll come to shortly, but opens up a, a, a set of other attributes that we, we need to possess as well. So you mentioned about the information. So connected to, to that, what sort of demand, what sort of quite specifically, what sort of accounting information is being demanded within companies and how's that changing? So in other words, what sort of information is, is being required for consideration and at that table that accounting wants to sit at? 
Yeah, and that's and that's that scene is equally a quantum shift and a huge change. And I would say, first of all, the need for faster, more accurate, and much more detailed information has exploded in the last couple of decades. Um, you hear this term big data, you know, you no doubt use that a lot at, uh, at the University of Melbourne and, and you hear it everywhere and it's not a well-defined term. So it's, it's easier if I give an example of big data, LB. I think it makes it more tangible. Um, one, one thing I'd get into is pricing and promotional data. We work in consumer goods companies and whether it's wine or it's vitamins, right? Finance maybe used to do a, a, a set of financial statements and maybe it used to be 20, 30 years ago about just being a little more detailed and try and provide a bit more information. When you look at questions like how do we price our products? How do we promote them? How often? How much of a discount in which customers, right? Finance sits right in the middle of these kind of analyses. And so the kind of information we would get there is we would get millions of data points from a company like Nielsen, that's an external company. And they're getting this information interface to them from large retailers, uh, from small retailers, right? And so what you learn from that information is here on thousands and thousands of promotions in different cities at different times of day and different days of the week at different prices, here's how much the consumers bought. And the shift has been that today, the expectation is that we can use statistics, advanced statistical analysis, and looking at thousands and millions of data points from the past, we can predict with a reasonable degree of accuracy how the consumer is going to respond to a certain kind of promotion at a certain price point with certain products on a certain day. And we can change that estimate based on how we do the promotion in store. You know, if you go into your local store and the promotion has an end dial at the end of the aisle and it's got shelf talkers that point you to the promotion and additional information or it's in the flyer or it's online. You look at all these factors in your statistical models and you use history to predict what will happen in the future. So the kind of data sets that you need, you need internal financial data. How much does each product cost? You know, what is the margin we make on each product? But you also need external market data. And so finance and accounting will sit there and fuse these two, you know, these multiple data sets together. And then they will run algorithms to try and optimize a promotional program. And if they do that effectively, that strategic revenue management, and they partner with sales and marketing, that's how you make the most money. You can calculate what the best outcomes are for promotional programs through the course of a year. And if you do that well and you make it a science, you can significantly improve the results of a company. So that's the kind of area that finance and accounting is playing in now. Whereas 20 or 30 years ago, that whole concept of predicting consumer behavior using the past, that was just really starting mm. in industry. Mm. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. It is so interesting that the data, because of the the, the amount of data that's available, the the assistance in sort of the predictive nature of information is yeah. um, it's just amazing. So. A little on the pandemic, Gunter. Um, you started in your most recent role as the pandemic took hold in Australia. Tell us a little bit about that and the role of accounting in helping the company without getting into too much of the specifics, but how the helping the company to manage the crisis, sort of what was critical in that. Um, that, must have been a, that must have been a really tough gig to start. 
Yeah, it was. And I had just returned, obviously, to, to, to Australia from, from a few years in California and uh, got here in January of 2020. So as you say, I'll be, we were just at the, the real beginning of the pandemic. And listen, I think it was really hard for everyone for a variety of different reasons. But what you saw is that for companies at the time when the pandemic began to ramp up, obviously for Blackmores, it has a China business. So already in January, we, we saw perhaps earlier than some other industries, which may not have Asian exposure, <clears throat> we saw the potential for this to be a huge risk event, a sort of a black swan event. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but regardless of how early companies saw this, um, one of the things that was a consistent theme is people dove really deep into risk management. Now, how bad is this going to get? And the question for finance and accounting, where we have the seat at the table, is you've got to run a lot of scenario analyses. Yeah. So, man, you know, executive teams and boards alike were going, listen, I need to understand what is our worst case scenario? What if this goes on for six months? It seemed like a long time in January mm. of 2020. Mm. What if it went on for 12 months? Mm. What if it went on for 18 months? You know, and then the question is, how would the consumers respond to it? You know, mm. are borders going to close? Are we going to get access to certain materials? Are our customers going to be able to pay us or are they going to run into trouble? Uh, what do our supply chains look like? Um, mm. So what happened is that management and teams and boards realized that in order to ensure their survival, they first of all started to focus on cash. Because you can talk about, you know, you've heard the old adage, uh, you know, the old adage, I'll be profit is an opinion, but cash is king. Never is that truer than when you have a black swan event like a pandemic. So first of all, people went back to cash and they said the thing that cannot happen is we cannot run out of cash and we can't breach our debt covenants with our banks because that sets in motion for a public company, a whole chain of events that you don't want. So what we did in finance and accounting is we began to look through all the scenarios and within those, all the assumptions. And you need to paint a picture across that spectrum. Here's what the worst cases look like. Here's how long we're hearing from the medical community they could or could not go on. Here's the best case. Here is the most probable case, right? And then once you look at all these scenarios for each of them there are action steps the company should take you know if it was the best case well demand for immunity vitamins will go up we don't need to do anything that's the best case scenario it's actually good for blackmores right the bad scenario is geez we lose china for several months you know uh, there's a huge impact of vitamin sales we can't get inventory of materials um supply from foreign markets is shut down you know, here's, here's a bad case and it goes on for 18 to 24 months. You know, that's your sort of nightmare scenario. <clears throat> but what happens is when you develop that range of scenarios, the use of it with the company is the decisions you make. So Blackmore's as an example, we decided to do a capital raise mm. in May or June. The capital raise wasn't needed in the best case scenario. Mm. You could argue that maybe only part of it was you know, good protection and, and abundance of caution in the most probable scenario. But at the time, the board knew that Blackmore's as a company was well thought of, that the capital markets were open to help companies that were acting out of an abundance of caution rather than anything else. So we made a prudent decision to do a capital raising a few months later and partway into the pandemic. So that's just one example 
of the kind of things that we did. Another example is we went to our banks and asked them to extend our leverage covenants. Mm. You start having a lot of banking discussions and they were very helpful, the banking groups. Mm. But you have to take a whole variety of steps. And then in the business, how do you get backup supply of materials? How do you build inventory and materials that might see problems if the pandemic you know, ramps up further? So your whole supply chain becomes so vital and how you invest working capital to give yourself space is, is, is such an important set of decisions. So finance and accounting is at the heart of risk management and risk management requires good understanding of scenarios and how you respond to each of them. And that's where finance can really contribute along with the other functions. Yeah, just, just, it's just amazing mm-hmm. the impact that all of this has had and how it's led businesses to just look at themselves yeah. in so many different ways. I'm just, just a, an added question to that so with lockdowns and things like that and people being you know working from home and so on how 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 did you find the internal communication channels that existed say within blackmores in your case how how does did they work fine did you have to spend a lot of time within the organization getting communication channels given that people were not necessarily in offices and so on um, yeah, and I think um, it's yeah. probably it's a great question, Alvin. I would imagine you you will have seen it at the university as well. Yes. I mean, what a quantum impact it's been. And um, I think first there was our, our IT systems, everything from ERP systems to forecasting systems to graphic design systems to, to fulfillment systems. Are, are we going to be able to work on those from home? And everybody had to send their employees home mm. to be safe, right? Mm. There was no question that you had mm. to, the only people that continued to work all the way through the pandemic are the ones who make, pack and ship our product. Yeah. Everybody else was sent home as, 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 as sort of non-essential. But as you say, Albie, the communication then changes. And I think it's had such a, an impact on employees. You know, they're getting used to Zoom meetings and yes. Teams meetings instead of face-to-face. And, and it is an adjustment. And, and there's this reaction where they start to feel like the days go on forever. Because, of course, if you're in Zoom and Teams meetings, well, you're at home and you're always at home. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, a whole bunch, what we found worked really well. And I think Blackmore's did a great job of it is, you know, in our, in our CEO and, and the sort of executive team, every week they would provide updates to the employees. Here's what's yes. happening. Here's what's changing in the legislation. Here's what we're doing internally. Here's how we're going to support you. Here's what's happening with our systems. And you need in a crisis to clearly over communicate. Because if you don't, people just, you know, they, they're already concerned, they're already alarmed, they're already fearful of the Mm -hmm. pandemic itself. You don't want to add to that by not, you know, so over communicate when there's a crisis, and do it transparently and do it clearly and support your employees. Mm You know, and if you can do those, if you can do those things, um, you, you know, the, 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 the team will be with you. If yeah. you don't, it gets really ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, now you've alluded to this earlier with your, your comment earlier about sort of owning what goes on in that sort of accounting and finance role inside industry and um, organizations. But so what do you, what have you really enjoyed about the, the CFO roles that you've had? 
Yeah, and I think uh, I would say there's probably a handful of things I'll call out, Albie. I mean, for me, I've been really lucky that, that there's been a great element of sort of in international and cultural diversity in some of my CFO roles. You know, they've been in the United States, they've been in Eastern Europe, they've been in mainland Europe. So I've, I've lived in seven countries in four <laughs> continents. So that uh, opportunity to live and work in so many different countries, it brings with it a wonderful cultural diversity. And you come across mm. so many different ways of seeing and thinking things. And if you keep open minded to that, that's really helpful in my own development. Um, I think the, a, a couple other things I'd call out. First of all, I've, I've been really lucky to work with some fantastic leaders. And mm. some of them sort of sponsored me and coached me very early in my career. And that's particularly when it makes a difference. And sometimes they were tough. You know, they weren't always, you know, but but they would spend some time with you, even if they were giving you constructive feedback. And that's a gift. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been uh, I've been very, very fortunate that that sort of through the nearly three decades that that a few of the right people took interest in me and helped me build. And for students, you know, that choice of your boss and your team is so incredibly important. Um, so for the CFO roles I've been in, I've been lucky that the majority of those have had a lot of great people around them. Uh, you know, you know, to help. Um, I think other the final things I'd call out opportunity to work and partner commercial and operations functions. If you want a seat at the strategic table, you've got to work in situations where they enable that and they and they encourage that. Mm -hmm. Right. And and companies like Record Benkies were phenomenal at, at sort of, you know, the salespeople would bring you out in the field with them. You know, with Treasury Wine Estates, I got to travel with the commercial teams and the sales and marketing teams in China and meet the distributors and build the route to market, negotiate the contracts, right? But you have to be learning as much about marketing or sales as the marketing or sales people know, because if you don't, you can't have a strategic seat at the table. So mm -hmm. I've been lucky because a lot of my CFO and my earlier finance roles gave me that exposure to commercial and operations functions and gave me those opportunities to learn. And, you know, I'd finally say that I've been lucky to be at some great companies, you know, P&G and Reckitt, fantastic, you know, Blackmore's really uh, strong turnaround. Uh, TWE was a great post story for the years that, that, that I was able to be there. It was a lot of fun. You know, I would say success is, you know, as, as they say, I'll be success is not a is not an action, but it's a set of habits. We are what we do repeatedly. And if you've got a fortune to work for a number of employers where you sort of see and are part of that success, then that helps to that helps you learn. That helps you develop. And, and in my CFO roles, I've been lucky that way, too. Oh, excellent. Um, so something that's been on my mind recently, and I think it's triggered by the, the pandemic and the um, other external shocks that companies might endure. So in broad terms, I've, I'm sort of wondered about can accounting and finance functioning companies, what can, what can they do to be well prepared for these sort of external shocks or can you simply not be prepared? In other words, is there a way to sort of stress test the adequacy of the accounting and finance function within an organisation? Do you have any thoughts about how, how do we know that our accounting and finance function is sufficiently structured to be well-placed to deal with these big external shocks. Yeah, that's a really great point, Albie. And I think one way you can 
and I wouldn't call it a stress test necessarily, but you can understand the resilience and readiness of your finance and accounting function and your business, you know, is exactly in your heartland, LB, which is what I call that monthly integrated planning rhythm. And um, if, if you do it the right way, your monthly integrated planning rhythm, you're looking at, you know, your demand volumes for the next 12 to 24 months. You're looking at your ability to supply those things. You're looking at new launches. Uh, you're looking at key business decisions and you're looking at what they all translate into financially. Right. But part of that process is risks and opportunities analysis. Right. And, and what can distinguish both an organization and a finance function is that they're really good at understanding both the risks and their opportunities. And so the pandemic, if you return to that example, geez, did we ever get some searing learnings on, on, on supply chain risks, for example. You know, we, we learned, you know, we have some great products, for example, um, you know, a product like Armaforce, which is in the bioceuticals thing, it's an immunity product. You know, it's a phenomenal product. People bought a lot of that at the beginning of the pandemic because they trust it for immunity, right? But its main ingredient is called andrographis. And it's an Ayurvedic ingredient, you know, ingredient that comes from India. And you can imagine when India suddenly shut down for four months during the pandemic, you started an interesting debate about what our potential backup supplies of andrographis are. You know, can there be in the future any that are local? Are there different Indian supplies? Are there different supplies from other markets? So I would say that what can an accounting and finance function do when you really delve into that monthly analysis of the key risks and opportunities, then you partner other functions to have mitigation plans for as many as the risks of the risks as you can. And I would say, if anything, the pandemic has sort of accelerated most companies to find more backup plans and more rigorously. And it was probably in the supply chains of the world that a lot of people uh, found some of the greatest challenges uh, existed. Mm -hmm. You know, can we get freight? You know, mm -hmm. can we get it on time? Can we get it at a reasonable cost? Can we get access to our ingredients? Everybody knew that's a risk. But until it, you get a generational event like a pandemic, you don't realize how big a challenge it is. Yeah. And that continues to resonate in a lot of industries two years later. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Right. Well, let's turn our attention to aspiring accounting and finance, uh, our, our graduates, if you like. So for those entering the profession, what are some of the key attributes a graduate would benefit from or could work on during their, their study time if for those who are seeking in particular to go into industry. Yeah, that's great. And, and listen, whether you go into industry or you go into the big four, you to go into the consulting, the sort of what I'll call core technical aspects of, of robust accounting are vital. And in a way, I won't talk to those because those are the ones that have been important all the time that accounting's existed, yes. you know, people that are thorough, that are diligent, that are numerate, that are you know, display high levels of ownership, you know, those kind of qualities are important and they always, always have been. But as you think about people going into industry uh, or even consulting or the big mm -hmm. four, I'll call out one that we find is, is a challenge for finance and accounting students. And that's really effective communication. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is that whether you're with the big four and you're in an auditing role or you're in industry and you're now got a strategic seat at the table and you're trying to influence decisions, your ability to communicate is your ability to influence decision making. Mm. 
And in any context, that's important. And what you see sometimes is that people will wrongly say, I'm going to take a career in finance and accounting because I'm comfortable with numbers, but mm -hmm. I don't like communicating or interaction with people. I understand that a lot of people feel that way. But my advice to you is get practice. Mm -hmm. Communication is so important. And in an industry where you're shaping direction of a company, the more senior you get, the more important it gets. So if you have aspirations to become a CFO, become a lifelong student of communication. Mm. So that's a, that's the second thing I'd say. Mm. And then the last couple of things I'd call out is, you know, develop strong and analytical skills. You know, so one is the technical skills of accounting. Here's the debits, here's the credits, here's the consolidation accounting, here's the accounting standards. So that's good. But the other side of it relates to decision-making. How do I analyze something and different scenarios to arrive at an optimal course of action? How do I do that analysis? And, you know, Albie, I know you and the team, and we've worked together on lots of case studies. That's a great way for students to do that. Case studies are your way into analytical decision-making as a student. So I really encourage people to embrace the ambiguity of these case studies. Do as many as they can, because that sets you up for that second piece, which is that seat mm. to the table. Excellent. With the the um, the communications, I mean, I think that it's increasingly that's the accounting is in the business of communications in many ways. It yeah. seems to me, and um, so that that element, yeah, is a critical for well for all of us. And I think the other thing about communication, as you alluded to, it's something that ideally we can all get better at if we want to enough. So it is something that. We don't all start off at, you know, 20 years of age, excellent communicators, but it is something, although some are, it is something we can get better at as time progresses and as long as we're prepared to work at it. I think that's um, an important That's a great thing. point. That's a great point, Albie. And I think it's communication. I always say to my team, I still have a lot to learn. And think mm -hmm. about when you hear great communicators, and I've had a fortunate to work with people who are much better communicators than I, right? When you hear a great communicator, don't just listen to it and go, oh, that's good. Ask yourself, why, why mm. was that so effective? You know, mm. was it their brevity? Was it their humor? Was it the way they modulated their voice? Was it their pauses? Was it their body language? If you really study when you see a great communicator, what makes them great to you? Mm. And you start to try and emulate and experiment with bits of that, then you learn how to better, you know, verbally mm. communicate or in writing. But if you're not consciously studying that, you don't improve. And so even if you work for the big four, if you want to succeed and you want to be a partner with PwC or Deloitte or EY or these guys, you need to be an effective communicator. Mm. So it's not just about industry, but it's so underrated. And sometimes people long, wrongly go through university thinking that they don't need to do that because this is more about the numbers. Unfortunately, unfortunately for them, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, so practice it. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then finally, is there any, well, we've probably covered off on most of it, but is there any, would you have any other advice for students contemplating or planning a career in accounting? Um, for example, you talked about the, for, for yourself, and I sometimes like to talk to students about, you know, we need to be global financial citizens, um, by, by at least knowing what's going on around the world. You've been fortunate to work across so many parts of the world. Um, do you see that as a, a relevant thing? Would students take those opportunities or what else, what other advice might you have for those either currently studying or planning a career in accounting? 
Yeah, I'd say a few things, Albie, and your call out is a really good one. You know, international, international opportunity, if you can get it, it's just so enriching because you encounter people who think about things differently than you do. And that makes that that helps you develop. Um, I would say, um, you know, you've had a theme through the questions today about, um, you know, industry versus the big four. Listen, starting with the big four is great. But whether you stay with them and you go for industry, what's important later on is getting a diversity of experiences. You know, even with your the big four, maybe you can spend a few years out of audit and consulting side, the big four. Um, find a way to do completely different things and a lot of them, especially early in your career, because the broader you can become and the more experiences you can have, the more opportunities you'll have later on. And it links into my second point, you can't always plan your career exactly. If I think about every role I've had over nearly three decades, I predicted exactly zero of them, mm -hmm. right? And it was always, you know, a company was like, oh, you're based here. Well, geez, this guy quit or something happened over here. We need to move you here or we need to move you to this new role or this different opportunity. And none of them I had planned. Sometimes I'd had great discussions with my bosses about, well, I wouldn't mind doing this, that or the other thing. But what really happens in companies, regardless of which industry they're in, is that there's often unforeseen events that create the need for you to take the next step in your career. Mm -hmm. Or you might get called by an external company with, a, with an opportunity, as I was by, by, you know, by, by Ben Keyser uh, before I went to Poland. And you, you can't plan for that. Somebody suddenly calls from Warsaw to Canada and says, we're looking for somebody to move over here. I mean, you, you can't expect that. So the advice I'd offer students is keep your ears and eyes open and really assess the opportunities. They might not be what you expected. I never expected to go to Warsaw, Poland in the 90s, but they can be such fantastic career builders. And you've got to really have a process and a way of thinking about which ones you choose and which ones you don't and why. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of, um, you know, flexibility, I would call it in terms mm -hmm. of opportunity is important. I think the final couple of things I'd say is that your boss and your team are so vital to your development. Mm -hmm. You know, company people don't leave companies, they leave bosses. Mm -hmm. Right. And so try and it's hard in an interview process. But get to know your sort of peers and bosses well. You know, they could be vital throughout your career and approach every relationship as if it could be something that's, uh, that, that, that stays with you for a long, long time, even after maybe you're not with that company anymore. If you approach things that way, that's great. And, and keep in mind that, you know, your boss and your team are as vital to, to your career as you are to theirs. Mm. Right. And it's a two way street. And I think, you know, for students, keeping that in mind as they approach industry is good. And then the final thing is, is sort of the theme of what we discussed early, Albie, which is accounting has gone from a reporting and controls function, which it is, to one that's heavily steeped in analysis and making better decisions. So become a student of these analytical and decision making skill sets because they will make the difference in the more senior part of your career. So that's, that's probably one of the big ones. Yeah, fantastic. Look, this has been uh, so much fun, Gunter. I could, um, as we have in the past, I could talk to you for hours about uh, many of these things. So really appreciate you joining us here at, uh, at TAPS, Gunter. Very much appreciated. It's been a lot of fun and we, we wish you well in your current and future endeavours. So thanks again. 
Great. Thanks a lot, Albie. It's been great to talk to you again as well and looking forward to chatting soon in the future. Take care. Mm -hmm.